0: We'll <laughs> Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds and today we're getting a little bit festive and a little bit frightening. Christmas is the time of year associated with twinkling lights, indulgence and general merriment, but it also goes hand in hand with dark nights and sinister apparitions. Today we're going to explore why Christmas is an eerie time of year. Is it the darkness and the gloom that sets people on edge? Perhaps it's a time of reflection, taking stock of the year that was and wondering whose spirits might be lurking in the attic. Or is there something specific about the very event of Christmas that suits a good old ghost story. A man dressed in red coming down the chimney to creep around your house would be terrifying on any other night of the year after all. In literature and on screen, the ghost story has long been a fixture of Yuletide culture, and so to think about why ghosts have been haunting December for as long as we can remember, I'm joined on the programme today by the arts journalist Andrew Mayle, who writes for Mojo, Sight & Sound and The Sunday Times, and who is a regular voice on the wonderful Backlisted podcast, and Tanya Kirk, lead curator of of Printed Heritage Collections, 1601 to 1900 at the British Library and the editor of three seasonally slippery anthologies, Spirits of the Season, Chill Tidings and Sunless Solstice from the British Library's Tales of the Weird series and two brand new guests and experts on the show. Welcome both. Oh, no, thank you. thank you. Lovely to have you here. We've dimmed the lights
1: Yeah. to <laughs> sort
0: of a spooky candlelit vibe. Um, to discuss our Christmas ghost stories and Tanya I'd like to start with you mm-hmm. when we talk about Christmas and ghost stories do they why do, why do they go hand in hand I'm kind of getting Victorian wafts already off yeah. or, off just our introduction there but it might be uncanny to some people as we said it's a, it's a season of merriment but also a sort of spooky season where does that come from I wonder
1: yeah I when I was researching for these Uh, collections of books I really struggled to kind of find the absolute answer for this and I think it was because I was looking at it in the wrong way so I kept thinking you know when did ghost stories start being published but actually you need to kind of go back to oral traditions and that's Mm -hmm. really where they come from and we know that people were telling ghost stories right back um, in like the 17th century and before then but they weren't fiction in the way that we know it today and the reason why there's this huge boom of ghost stories in the 19th century and later is because basically the short story gets invented as a form. And you know, ghost
0: stories, I suppose, lend themselves so well to that exactly, form, the structure of it. Exactly, yeah. they're,
1: they're like a—it's a kind of um, confined story that suits being short form, and it works really well. And then you get people like, so Dickens is obviously the most kind of famous proponent of ghost story and really popularized. I feel it. like he
0: maybe is in the room. That (laughs) that old elephant.
1: Um, So Christmas Carol comes out in 1843. Uh And then he uh, was the editor of these two kind of fiction periodicals, Household Words and All all the Year Round. Mm. And they serialised fiction stories. So you'd have like a story that would appear. It was like a soap opera, really, that'd appear over loads of months. But at Christmas, he used to produce these kind of special issues that were like gift issues, that the idea being that people would give them to family members for Christmas. So you couldn't have your serial stories in them because people would only have that one issue and it would be pointless.
0: So this so, is your sort of Christmas annual thing? Yeah. Bum- the bumper edition? Exactly. To be one-off stories? Yeah. OK. Yeah. So
1: ghost stories were really perfect for that. So that's kind of one reason, I think, why they become really associated with publishing at Christmas. But as to why they were told around the fire... I think that's like a whole other thing, and it comes into like the idea that it's the darkest point of the year, yeah. and this kind of spirits walking. And you're... yeah, the
0: shortest day yeah. is just before Christmas,
2: isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So we're in that realm of of ultimate darkness, I suppose.
0: Aren't we? I suppose also yeah.
2: it is the death of the year, isn't it? Yeah, and it's and it's the time in which you kind of take stock, which is kind of um, ironic at the moment. You know, take stock of of, of the ones that you've lost and yeah. what you've lost, and and prepare for rebirth. And I suppose there's, you know, it's less verifiable, isn't it? But things like ancient festivals, like the Yule festival, yeah. and things like that, where that are associated with death and sacrifice, and and a, and a notion of of rebirth. But I also like the idea that. It's the time when you know the veil between worlds is at its thinnest, yes. ah, you know? and yes, and yes. that you know it's a time when the, the dead have access to the living when they can cross over. So when you're combining that with that kind of time where families gather and yeah. ev- and everyone gets together, you know, and then hang on, there's more people in this room than we invited. You know, <laughs> yeah. there, there are there are other there are other presences here that have crossed over for this particular time of the year. Um, yeah. You know, and I think it's it's kind of what Tanya says. You can't just focus on one reason. You have to bring all of those in, which yeah. I think is one of the reasons what, that makes it so fascinating. Yeah. That it's this kind of collection of ancient tradition and, and then sort of, you know, but also kind of, you know, the industrial sort of product of the, you know, the magazine periodical and the short story. And also, you know, an an editor, Charles Dickens, obsessed with ghost stories. And and as a commissioning editor, commissioning ghost stories all the time. So, you know. I love
0: that. I love Dickens as commissioning editor. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I'll pitch it to Dickens, see what he says. (laughs) It's a ghost story. It's in. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's a win-win with Dickens at the helm, with Dickens on the masthead. So we're sort of, we're coming to an understanding that, we all kind of know why ghost stories feel right. But yeah, putting your finger on the, on the, on the yeah. exact sort of crux of, of, of why they're so suitable. I think you mentioned it in the introduction, Tanya, to Chill Tidings, the second of those three um, anthologies of spooky Christmas stories about the Industrial Revolution and perhaps people moving from the countryside to the city and maybe some sort of, not a pagan yearning, but a kind of a yearning for simpler things and storytelling and things like that. Spooky stories set in urban settings were only, only sort of became, well, to my knowledge, a 20th century thing that that kind of, they were mostly things that were sort of set on moors and in sort of churchyards and country houses and things, I suppose. That's, we're sort of in that realm most of the time in Christmas ghost stories, aren't
1: we? Yeah, I think that's back to the fact that um, when people used to tell these stories around the fire before they were written down and it was very much an oral tradition they Mm. were kind of seen as like semi-factual and they were about your local area and the ghosts that lived there my um, ghost better than your ghost. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <a> regional playoff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: okay. <laughs> I suppose, uh, and I think I think you, you've mentioned it before, Tanya. This idea of the rise of the literate middle classes as yeah. well—that kind of that something to read becomes, uh, you know, a, a sign of that you've kind of arrived. You, you, you know, you're a reader, and you and you've got your little collection of stories. Mm-hmm. But also, it you associate with a rise in leisure time as well. That yeah. you kind of you. You have got time. You're not just getting home from working in the fields, being knackered, and then falling asleep. You get home, you sit in your chair by the fire, and you read a story to yourself. Yeah. And, and also,
1: it's the invention of commuting. Yes, so. oh, that's a really, no.
2: That's a really good point. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So it, again, it was that that kind of thing was perfect for that. Yeah. I think the other thing that I find really interesting is the fact that people, when people want to feel cosy, they want to read something that's absolutely not cosy. And there's this really brilliant um, quote from Jerome K. Jerome in his story told after supper, which is, uh, so he says, Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about spectres. It is a genial festive season and we love to muse upon graves and dead bodies and murders (laughs) and blood.
0: Merry Christmas.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it is that kind of weird, like... (laughs) contrast between how you how you you're experiencing these stories and what they're about I think is really enjoyable for people
2: at your your most cozy and safe is when you want to hear stories of of a destabilized world you know and and things that are kind of that have gone askew and and you know have gone out of true when you're kind of at a point that kind of signifies just complete and utter detachment from the world
0: yeah, you ne- and we've we talked about the sort of being around the fire, the hearthside parlour yeah. tale, and that is all about that. There is an, there's something ultimately cosy about it. Whether it's the sort of the kind of grand country house, everyone is everyone's always gathered around the fire. Put yeah. they pulled their chairs towards the hearth. They're kind of disregarding the rest of the house, and there is, there is very much a kind of lamplit glow to a lot of this, a lot of this stuff. So let's talk about some of the fabric of it. Let's talk about some of the kind of tropes and perhaps cliches of specifically Christmas ghost stories. One thing that I noticed was sort of there's quite a lot of kind of traveling back from journeys, traveling, you know, again sort of taking yeah, stock of a returning home, returning yeah. home. There's a lot of that, isn't there? Yeah. Well, what are some of the other things that we associate with Christmas ghost stories?
1: When I looked through all of these, one of the things that I found the most fascinating was how so many of them take thing, Christmas traditions and subvert them in a way that fits in with the idea of the ghost story that M.R. James came up with, which is that you should take something that feels like real everyday life and then make it weird. Mm. Um that was how you should make things scary. And so I made a list of things that, of ghost stories oh, that um, take these Christmas traditions. So you get things like. Um, like after dinner games. So, uh, the SME by A.M. Burrage is a, a weird hide and seek. You get uh, various card games that go wrong. So, Strange Christmas Game by Charlotte Riddell. Uh-huh. You get practical joking that goes wrong. So that's the real encounter. So they start off by... with jolliness, don't they? Yeah. Start, yeah. Yeah. yeah, So there's all these that are set around games. You've got some that have like sinister ghostly Father Christmases that are not what they seem. There's I just a... read the LP
0: Hartley from your second yeah. anthology. Someone in the lift. Someone, The man yeah. in the lift. And... Yeah. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, really sinister. Yeah, it was really um... strange. Um, there's an, actually another L.P. Hartley story that's going to be in the collection that I'm doing for next year called The Waits, which is about sinister carol singers. <laughs> <laughs> sinister carol singers. Fantastic. <laughs> it's really interesting how those things get kind of turned on their head and they become these like real sources of menace.
2: Yeah,
0: so sort of come, stemming from that idea of the ultimately jolly, cosy time of year, birthing this kind of uneasy feeling or, or us, us drawing an uneasy feeling towards us as we sit around our hearth. And I suppose some of the tropes of the storytelling itself come from that as well. It's the yeah the, the par game gone wrong.
2: Absolutely, and and one of the things that we were kind of men- mentioning earlier before we came on is the way in which in so many Christmas ghost stories, things are resolved neatly. It's kind of it's wrapped up in a very tidy bow at the end, and everyone goes back to <laughs> their normal Christmas. And so you, you gave Smee as an example. Smee is an absolutely terrifying story. Yeah, the it, it has an incredibly unsatisfying ending where someone <laughs> says, "Oh, it's just a ghost." Yeah. Yeah. And, and but the thing is, you know, I kind of it, we I mean, recognizing that that is a trope of the genre. I think is really important because sometimes we can accept that they had to end like that at Victorian times or in sort of early twenties. But what lasts when you you read Smee is not the ending; it's that feeling of being unsettled, whether, whether mm. the, 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 the character spots another figure in the crowd of people yeah. always sitting behind the the hand when it brushes against that sort of crinoline dress or whatever it is. You wanted to use a quote from a great ghost story writer and one who was very anti the explainable ending, Robert Aikman. Mm. And he said, in the end, it's the mystery that lasts and not the explanation with a good ghost story. yeah, And I think that, you know, I think that's true and we can read a lot of these stories and find them genuinely chilling and unnerving and almost kind of just have to address the fact that we're waiting for the last page <laughs> where someone yeah. says, it was just a ghost. <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was a silly story I told anyway. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you're back in the room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, very much Spells so. Spells cast, yeah. sort of uncast.
2: The other interesting things as well um, is... The and I think it's really interesting, you were mentioning um, Edith Wharton, mm. the amount of these stories that are written by women yeah, and the way in which the ghost story becomes a site to explore the horror of the domestic, if, you, if you, you're looking for a phrase, mm. but also the effect that the absent man or the absent male has on a household run by women and that becomes a theme. So you kind of realise it's an area where suddenly, you, ha- in a way, you have women, as far as I can see it, women working with a genre that frees them and allows them to write about the subconscious, mm. to write about the domestic, to write about their relationship with men and articulate those as, as sites of unease or horror.
1: Yeah, definitely. One of the reasons why there's so many ghost stories by women is because writing short stories was a way that people could make money it was a kind of an approachable uh, career for a woman who wanted to be a writer. So I think that is part of it and that's why there's so many that we've found that were basically published in the late 19th, early 20th century in these kind of story periodicals and then they've just been forgotten and so it's great to be able to uncover those and bring them back.
0: So you've got just to mention some some names because we it might be inter- it might be nice to talk about Edith Wharton that was one of the yeah. reasons we wanted to to do this program actually because New York Review of Books has just sort of published I think it's just called Ghosts um, yeah. which mm. is I think her anthologies and I know you did a backlisted on the ghost story of Edith Wharton yeah. and and the anthologies are a bit messy that certain Certain stories are in the Virago one, certain ones are in this new, new York Review of Books ones. They sort of seem to chop and change. Well, the,
2: the New York Review of Books one is the first time that the original compilation, as Edith Wharton designed it, has uh-huh. been reissued in, in its true form. Because basically, I think it was, it was the last book that she released before she died and she collected together all of her ghost stories. So, in a way, it's her final statements on her writing. And I do think that, that they're really interested to go back to and, and look at them as a woman writing. I mean, because the interesting thing is that she designed houses and she came from a family who, you know, invested lots of money in houses. And so the grand house, the big house, is at the center of lots of her stories. And it's not always a place of contentment. Mm. It's often a place of kind of nightmare and despair. Yeah. And um, it's actually really interesting parallel with um, Shirley Jackson. Yeah. Because Shirley Jackson's family, um, all those kind of grand Gothic buildings on the, you know, in San Francisco and everything, a lot of the ones that got destroyed in the earthquake were built by Shirley Jackson's family. Yeah. And so the grand house, like her story, The Haunting of Hill House, these aren't seen as places of coziness, or places of comfort, but they're seen as places of nightmare.
0: Yeah, and it's really interesting that they know those houses.
2: Yeah, they were kind of left by men in them. Mm. I mean, there's a quote by the short story writer Carolyn Blackwood that says something to the effect of, well, of course women write the best ghost stories because they know what it's like to be left alone in an empty house with just the crimes of men to sort of ponder. Yeah. You know, so, and she, you know, she's, she's absolutely right. It's, you know, the best ghost stories by women... Do address those themes, yeah. Well, Andrew sort of
0: touched on this, but I, I wanted to ask sort of pitch the question at you the psychological terrain that, yeah, female writers can cover, and especially in shortened form and especially in this genre. What aspects of the subconscious are we kind of talking about, Tanya?
1: I think one of the most interesting writers of ghost stories that are really psychological is Mae Sinclair, who's a kind of I guess, lesser known now, but was hugely influential in the um, early part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And she's credited with inventing the term stream of consciousness, which is quite acclaimed to fame. <laughs> That's
0: good. Yeah. I'll get the T-shirts printed. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> um, but yeah, her her stories are, they're all very psychological ghosts. And I mean, they are like real hauntings, but they are very much in the mind and all the better for that, I think. I guess women were kind of credited as being able to explore feelings. Mm. This became more of a realm that women could write in. And this kind of psychological idea of ghosts came out of that. Yeah. I guess it's almost like um, there's one theory about why ghost stories became so popular in the 19th century, which I don't totally believe, but I do mention it in one of the introductions, (laughs) which is that um, gaslighting... Could, if it wasn't calibrated properly, could give off fumes that could make you hallucinate, and so therefore all of this could be, become even more real. And
0: well, there, uh, there is something of gaslight. The Patrick Hamilton. The Patrick movie. Hamilton. Yeah, yeah, yeah right? this is why I, mean, I was thinking about where, it. This is yeah. there is something about this which is men telling women they're nuts. Yes. Yes. And you know, if you were rich enough. And nasty enough as a husband in Victorian times, you'd send someone, you'd send your wife to an asylum yeah. if you, yeah. someone new came on the scene. And the, and so the, there is the, something, there is something, the, something the deep psychological. The, the
2: trope of the hysterical woman, kind of in it, and it fits in with this idea. You know, so often the, the ghost story is a way of writing about the unsound mind, but also the abused woman as well. Yeah. You know, the, the way of discussing that. And I think that you're absolutely right that that. These stories would not get the attention they deserve because they were about feelings and emotions. Yeah. And also probably because they were associated with um spiritualism and you know and, and sort of which, you know, later became became regarded as, as silly, you know, and kind of and, and something that, you know, the over emotional person would get mm. involved in. So you're you know, I suppose you're writing in an area where you've got a certain freedom to discuss, you know, kind of what dwells below the conscious and below reason in a form that isn't going to be questioned because you're, you're you're on the guardrails of the genre. I mean, it's it's a way that people have used genre all the time, you know, kind of, I mean, you know, only now people are writing nonsense about elevated horror, but horror movies have always been about, you know, the unconscious and the deranged senses and the and the abused self and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Isn't
1: it such a trope as well that in the stories people are... It's set up at the beginning. It happens in Afterward, actually, where people are like... Oh, I don't believe in ghosts. Don't be ridiculous. I'm a, a logical <laughs> yeah. person of the modern age. Yeah. And then the story is all about them being proven. Too. Absolutely.
2: And often, you know, and often it's the, you know, the 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 man is presented as the as the fallible logic person. And and often you have characters who have had some kind of emotional trauma, yeah. have got out of hospital, are recovering after the loss of a child or something. And so, yeah, sort of the the war of the emotions is is you know a massive focus and and centered on the house. I mean, there's a there's a line in it might be in Afterward actually by Edith Wharton where she just I think it's just three words. It just said the house knew. A little shiver up the back of the neck. Yeah, <laughs> and which is also in you know in, in Shirley Jackson the way in which she writes that the house it almost is is a witness to yeah. these things. It's the silent witness to what is going on, and you know like the. TV ghost story for Christmas, the Stone Tape. Yes, it retains those memories. You know, it holds on to them. It is seen. I mean, that. I mean, that is essentially is about you know a, a building witnessing yeah. an abused woman and and recording the memory of it and then playing it back. Well, I wanted to ask you both about that, and I thought you
0: might sort of this might be sort of chosen your sort of potential mastermind subject somehow, <laughs> Andrew. <laughs> and that's the a ghost story for Christmas. It was on um BBC TV through the 70s. It's been sporadically revived by Mark Gattis. And, yeah, they're and showing the, the Mezzo
2: yeah. tint this year. Oh right. Oh, yeah. 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 Right. I mean it's interesting, isn't it, that they have always gone back to Mr. James. Yeah. And you, I mean, certainly Tanya, you must feel there's a, there's a point where you just think I wish they'd adapt somebody else. I mean, I love M.R. James, I really do. But, uh, you know, you think of all the other great ghost stories, you know, that yeah. could be adapted for TV.
1: I feel mixed about it because in some ways I'm glad that he gets that outing. Because yeah. I think that otherwise people might not hear about him yes, now. Yes, that's true. And I'm glad that people get kind of sent back to the stories from yeah. watching those. But, yeah, I totally agree. It would be nice and uh, some others.
2: But also if we've been talking about tropes of Christmas, tradition. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, it's traditional. And yeah. so therefore it fits within that. You know, you would feel that it would be wrong to suddenly do you know kind of charlotte riddell or you know E. F. benson or something like that you know it's part of tradition that it should be mr james and it's the the fact that he
1: told his stories at christmas as well so exactly completely in keeping
2: yeah Yeah. Yeah. and also you have to have
0: two first initials mr james ef benson hp lovecraft yeah Yeah. if you've only got one sort of first name initial need you need not apply for christmas (laughs) (laughs) you're sunk right (laughs) exactly yeah don't even go there um Should we recommend our listeners some, some stories? I mean, you've got four anthologies. Um, I think <laughs> Tanya's come prepared, hasn't she? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but maybe from some of the, the lesser-known writers. I know you, you've got people like Robert Aikman in there and, yeah. and, and better-known names, but who should our readers check out, Tanya, um, at this seasonal time of year? So the,
1: the one from this latest collection that I was really surprised by was one by someone called Letise Galbraith. Mm-hmm. and uh, it's called The Blue Room and uh, I had to write a whole biography of her for the book and basically no one knows anything about her or it probably isn't her real name. She's okay. a complete mystery.
0: Lettice <laughs> so, Galbraith? Yeah. If that is your real name? Yeah. Okay. And when, when, when was she operating?
1: Lettice Galbraith, so she writes The Blue Room. It was published in Millen's magazine in October 1897 and I really love it because it's... It's the only...
0: It, it's the only um horror story that the orb have named an album after <laughs> yes exactly that okay. <laughs> also I think
1: it's uh, it's got a really kind of uh, kick ass uh, modern heroine in, in yeah. it who's like I'm going to solve this by sleeping in the room where everyone dies and, oh. and she does uh, spoiler sorry um, <laughs> but also I really like it because it, the narrator is the maid in this big house and that kind of brings you back to the history of these stories where quite often they were told by like nursemaids to children basically to shut them up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they become associated with kind of female servants uh, through the nineteenth century, and so I really like that it reminds you of that fact.
0: Yeah, these anthologies seem to be have been an opportunity to shine a light on writers, especially female writers that that maybe didn't work. I will write outside of the genre or wrote for these weekly periodical magazines yeah. and things like that so it's kind of nice well it's yeah. interesting for the for the the reader who can mix up a, the well-known name with the, with the yeah with the and less that's known name.
1: I guess that's how it kind of fits in with my job because my job is supposed to be about making. The collections of the British Library accessible to people, Mm. and this is a really great way of uncovering things that people wouldn't otherwise have known about.
0: Shining a a guttering candle on (laughs) lesser-known writers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What I wanted to read actually was just this. It's a little bit of the introduction. This is from the Virago Book of Ghost Stories of Edith Wharton. She sort of quotes the sort of the cynic saying, "No, I don't believe in ghosts, but I'm afraid of them." And I suppose that's the it's the sort of, that's the crux of all of it, right? Yeah. It's like if you're sitting around the fireside telling these things, you, you, you know, if, you, might not, be,
2: you not, might not believe in them, but you're afraid of them. Yeah. Absolutely. She said yes. she was very suspicious of the ghost seer, she said, someone who said they had seen a ghost, but very much was in tune with the ghost feeler. Yeah someone who had felt the presence of a ghost, didn't yeah.
1: she say she had to burn uh, copies of ghost stories?
2: She couldn't be in the same room with them as them. And but I that's think that's when, she was yeah, yeah. when she was a child. And I yeah. think that's one of the reasons why it's really important that the last book she publishes is a collection of ghost stories because it's like her saying, you know, I am at ease with this now. I've come to terms. But yes, with they yeah. would have to. You know, if they knew, if she knew a ghost. You know a collection of ghost stories within the house, yeah, or it would have to be you know moved to a lower floor or something, yeah. Absolutely, it's
0: like it's like sort of people sort of saying they can't sleep if they're take all the electronics out of your bedroom and then you'll have a really good night's yeah. sleep, yeah.
2: But she was <laughs> well, she said <laughs> that with these living ghost stories, I love that idea. Found, she said that the world of literature is the supernatural world, mm. you know, that, that it's it's that the she had no interest in the real world, you know, that she was interested in the world of literature mm. and she basically said that is the supernatural world. And I can't remember where she said it, but, you know, she basically said that there is this, the world of the modern, you know, of cars and and, and kind of noise and trains and everything. And on the other side of the door, there is something as old as the world and myst- as mysterious as life. And I think it's about, you know, a kind of, if you kind of want to tie it all together, the ghost story is about crossing through that door but also I think Christmas is yeah. about, is about crossing through that door as we said at the start you know the time when the veil is thin and you can move between worlds it's spooky stuff yeah you? it's good it's good stuff <laughs> do you have um in your notes
0: anything any recommendations for people well at, we To get we, cozy and I would say that' <laughs>
2: frightened was, with two that I wanted to recommend because I think they they show how terrifying the, the the Christmas ghost story would be, but also how they they are neatly wrapped up. And which is Smee, yeah, by yeah. A. M. Burridge and uh, Between the Lights by E. F. Benson, yeah. And um, yeah, thanks the, for uh, getting me to reread that one. Yeah, It's really odd. <laughs> oh, well, that's it. I mean, yeah. it it uses the ghost, the Christmas ghost story, as a vehicle for telling something that you almost feel that it's it's ahead of its time. It's much more like a kind of late twentieth century story. It's or maybe it's a bit like kind of, you know, that because he has the trappings of of, of the Christmas ghost story structure, he can write something that is incredibly weird and disturbing Mm. and then kind of bookend it with these, shall I tell you a funny Christmas story? (laughs) Yeah, and so, you know, it it kind of allows you a certain kind of creative and poetic license, the, the, you know, the form. Yeah. Thank God for the genre, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's sort of
0: in the in the in the embracing sort of in the embrace, the chilly embrace, yeah. I suppose. Well, it's of, a really important point story. because people
2: are sniffy about genre, aren't they? You know, hmm. and and they feel that kind of simply by spotting the tropes of a genre, they're somehow belittling it or catching it out.
1: Yeah, but don't you think one of the real strengths of the genre of ghost stories and Christmas ghost stories in particular is that. People have written comic ones that turn all those on their head and laugh <laughs> at them. But that hasn't stopped people writing serious ones. It's not like someone someone took the mick out of it and then it was dead. No, yes. absolutely
2: um, not. And there's in a way there's nothing I like less than the comic Christmas yeah. story you know it's like they make me really angry because I said
1: treat it treat it with respect
2: yeah. treat it with respect you know, Too because right. it, that's, you know H- HG Wells coming along going it's all stuff and nonsense isn't it Just, yeah. you know, yeah. idiot <laughs> Um, I don't think we can end any better
0: than Andrew <laughs> Wells being an, his classic H.G.
2: Wells impersonation. I feel terrible now because some some of the stories that H.G. Wells wrote are absolutely, like, ter- terrifying Yeah, now, really, really. Yeah. Yeah, I feel bad for d- taking Wells out and just dissing him for it. Sorry, yeah. sorry H.G., old sorry, man. Sorry, H.G. At least got he's got initials. the first two initials. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's in the club. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we're
0: suitably chilled and we've got some uh, excellent reading matter scribbled in our notebooks. Thank you very much. Indeed, too Tanya Kirk and Andrew Mayle, and of course to my producer Holly Fisher. We'll be back at the same time next week when we'll be rounding up the best books, albums and films of the year. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thank you for tuning in. (laughs)